You're listening to a University of Warwick podcast. For more information on the university, please visit warwick.ac.uk. Hello, my name is Peter Dunn, and I'm here with Professor Michael Doyle, who's just received his honorary Doctor of Laws from the University of Warwick. Uh, Michael, this is not his first visit to the university. In fact, I've discovered he was actually a lecturer here in 1975, right at the start of his academic career. And he's now gone on to be, become the Harold Brown Professor of International Affairs of Law and Political Science at Columbia at the School of International Law and Public Affairs, and he co-directs the Centre there on Global Governance at Columbia Law School. And his academic career and writings are many, and forgive me if we're going to focus today on just one tiny bit of that, but one where he's particularly renowned for, which is Doyle's law that democratic or liberal states tend not to go to war with each other. So, first of all, Congratulations on receiving your honorary degree. How does it feel to be back once again 39 years after? It is just wonderful. I'm honored to receive this degree. It is uh, the kind of thing that a young lecturer who starts out at a university can only dream about, uh, and this dream has come true. And it's also beautiful to see how this university has grown. We had 1,500 students or so in just a few buildings. I remember remarking way back then that we had to suffer through a continuous building site when back in 1975 with the view that someday the people who followed us would enjoy the pleasures of a tranquil campus. I understand that work has been a building site ever since and it's certainly one today and it's the sign of a dynamic university. So it's a great pleasure to be back. Thank you. Uh, Doyle's Law is probably as famous in, in political science as Boyle's Law is in, uh, in natural sciences and uh, in a nutshell, I'm probably explaining it very badly. You say that liberal democracies tend, in fact, don't go to war with each other. But you also say they have the same tendency, or in fact are prone to go to war with non-liberal states. Is that the case? Uh, I believe so. Uh, again, these are tendencies. And even more strikingly, perhaps, some of the very same reasons that make them peaceful with each other contribute to bellicosity with non-liberal states. Here's what I mean by that. Now, we have to start by acknowledging that in many cases, of course, liberal states are attacked by non-liberal states. So they fight defensive wars. Uh, we only need to think of uh, World War II as an obvious example with uh, the Nazi aggression on Europe, the Japanese attack on the United States. But, but one can't stop there. It's not the case that we can fairly blame all wars on the authoritarians. There is a, uh, an aggressive strand that within liberal democracy that complements the peaceful strands that hold the liberals together. For example, a common respect for uh, human rights, um, democracy itself, the free market contributes to peace among uh, liberal states because they share those common views, they want to protect and preserve them. But that same spirit produces a degree of bellicosity to states that the liberal states, the non-liberal states, see or seen as violating human rights or restricting markets or engaging in uh, manipulations of what should be arm's length transactions. So it builds hostility. Another feature 
that contributes to the peace among liberals is constitutional government. That is a divided government that allows time for deliberation, that uh, allows the two societies to mutually influence each other through a variety of different channels. In dealing with non-liberal states, that same degree of deliberation and constitutional division can allow policy to be taken over by small groups, corporate or, or national security or uh, the intelligence uh, community in ways that exacerbate conflict. And because the, the, the kind of ties are so much less intense between liberals and non-liberals compared to liberals and liberals, that single interest, the single faction, the single bureaucracy can manipulate and shape policy. And so just to give you one example, the United States uh, engaged in uh, a covert uh, coup in Guatemala in 1954, very heavily influenced by the activities of the CIA and American banana companies that got together to do that. In relations at the same time with Europeans and others, there are so many other interests that are at work that balance out potentially aggressive factors that you have a, a dynamic that produces an incentive towards peace. So these are some of the, the, the different tendencies that allow for a simultaneous creation of a relatively reliable, with a few exceptions, relationship of peace among fellow liberal democracies and a remarkable degree of hostility leading many times to war, some being defensive, but others being aggressive by liberal states to non-liberals. And that's, that's a pattern I think that's pretty strong in world politics. I've been reading in the, your collected essays on liberal peace, your book, which collects together a number of them on this, on this topic, and in particular, liberalism and world politics, which is one of the top 20 most cited articles in the 100-year history of the American Political Science Review. So a stunning achievement in itself. And you look very carefully to see if there's any exceptions to your, mm -hmm. your law. And you find, as I can see it, only one, really, which is Ecuador, Peru. But even that has an explanation. The, the, uh, what is your feeling about that one exception to, Do to Doyle's law? You know, I think there are just a, a tiny number of exceptions. That technically is one. You know, when you, as a social scientist, you develop a coding rule. And in order to be an honest researcher, you, 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 you play as it lays. That is, you follow the coding rule. And so it produces a few exceptions in that regard. Um, so no one should say this is an iron law. That is, that it's a guarantee. Uh, you know, you got a democracy, we got a democracy, let's go home and sleep. <laughs> it takes work to maintain a relationship. Uh, and that's very important. Um, and so there are a few exceptions. That's one Oh, some people might argue, for example, that um, the war against Spain between the U.S. and Spain in 1898, for a very brief period, there were some Republican elements went into the Spanish government. Uh, technically, there was a state of war between Finland and the Allies in World War II because mm, Finland was allied with uh, the Nazi regimes. Mo overwhelmingly because they had been attacked by the Soviet Union. You look for allies wherever you find them. So they aligned themselves with the, the Nazi war machine. Because, and then when the West, when, the, when France, France and the UK aligned themselves with the Soviet Union, technically Finland was at war with France and the UK. And Finland was a functioning uh, democratic state during this period. 
And so there are some exceptions out there. That one is, there were no real shots fired between Finns and French and, and, and British and Americans. It was a paper war in that way. But nonetheless, on the coding, you have, mm. to, you have to follow it. So it's not an iron law. Mm. Most of the exceptions that are most interesting to me are the ones where you got to a crisis that got close to war. Mm. And I think we can learn a lot from that. Uh, the most famous, I think, is Fashoda in 1898, where Britain and France came very close to a war. Uh, fortunately, there were c some cooler heads, uh, some in the business community, some in the press, um, the Queen herself, uh, all of whom pushed back against the warlike pressures. Uh, and uh, a, a actual conflict was, avo was avoided, even though the level of tension was such that a war really could have happened. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to be careful. That is, even liberal states have to understand, accommodate, work at the relationship. It's like a marriage. You, you got the marriage license, and one is married, but marriages that re rely totally on that don't last. It's a, it's a work in progress, and so are these relationships, in my view. And a lot of these relationships between these liberal states are clustered in Europe. Mm -hmm. And in recent times, of course, some might argue that Europe has avoided war because of the bipolarity of the Cold War. But I know you've addressed that issue as well. Right. Let's, we should make sure to realize that bipolarity and the Cold War did contribute to the cohesion of the Western alliance as it contributed to the cohesion of uh, the Warsaw Pact. It made it easier for Germans and French and British to cooperate with Americans because they had a common enemy. This, undoubtedly, this contributed. But it's, it's not the sole factor, and uh, in, in the longer sway of history, probably not the most important. Uh, we should note that uh, the democracies were strikingly peaceful with each other before the Cold War, after the Cold War in the 1990s. And, you know, even though cohesion was, was, was you know, added to by the Cold War in the Western Bloc and NATO, so too in the Eastern Bloc, but that did not prevent the Soviet Union from invading, uh, you know, the, the Czechoslovakia, Hungary, having a war with China. Uh, there were, it, it's a, there's something else at work. And what else I think is at work is this uh, set of institutional uh, cooperation uh, amongst democratic governments, the common attitudes and respect for democratic rule, markets and human rights, and the deep ties of commerce that have been established on top of all those things, commerce, investment, movement of tourists, movement of students, movement of professors, that help bring together these countries in ways that are quite striking. And how have liberal states avoided what you refer to in your work is the security dilemma, mm -hmm. where in this sort of Hobbesian world, people have to arm and are frightened of their neighbors right. and will indulge in a first strike to avoid a war. Mm -hmm. How have the liberal states avoided that with each other? Yeah, it's, 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 again, it's, it's the heart of the, the issue. Uh, it's on the Hobbesian model, which we now call structural or other forms of realism, you know, every state is a, is a, a unit. Uh, there is no world government to protect them. Because there's no external source of protection, every government has to protect itself. When they begin to arm, we know that arms aren't absolute, they're relative. It's whether you have more rather than whether you just have enough with many forms of arms. Uh, and that produces logic towards arms race. 
then often if you seem to be losing an arms race, the incentive to strike first before you're even weaker in the future, that whole logic of the security dilemma and then preventive wars is deeply embedded in the great insights of realism that date all the way back to Thucydides and were most brilliantly articulated by Hobbes in his great book, The Leviathan. It's also no accident that he was a senior official in the Commonwealth, the Latin <laughs> secretary. And he didn't just translate documents. He was the key advisor on many questions of, of British national security during the Commonwealth period. So he knew what he was talking about. Where, where the liberals are different, it's, it's not that there's a world government over them. They're still also in a state of technical anarchy mm -hmm. in the sense that there is no world government to regulate things. But what's different is that they have managed to achieve what might be called a self-enforcing peace. It's not enforced by somebody else, a world government. It's enforced by their own incentives, their own procedures, uh, their own cultures that come to understand and respect each other. And so they don't have to engage in arms races to be secure. Uh, there, there was an arms race between the U.S. and the British Empire, Canada, on the Great Lakes uh, in the 1815s, and it was a ferocious arms race. Um, but since both have acquired the, the deep understanding of their mutual existence as liberal states, you pick the date, 1830s, 40s, 50s, neither of which was perfect, we must say, by modern mm. standards of that period, uh, there's been disarmament. The border between the U.S. and Canada today is, a, is basically a disarmed border. Um, uh, the uh, defense of the U.S. and Canada is integrated so that they'd have to defend each other through the NORAD system. Uh, this border only exists for commercial, visa, other kinds of considerations, and nothing more than that. And similarly, we see borders across Europe have become integrated so that there really are no more borders yeah. within the Schengen area. And that was not possible in the 1930s or any time previous, but it has become possible in the period after, after, World, War, after World War II with the development of the European Union. And so again, we have uh, a border without a security competition across it, and it's very, very significant. Now, again, it's never, ever perfect. These are striking examples. There are other inter-democratic borders that are a little tenser, for example, mm -hmm. like the border between Argentina and British Falklands or the border between Spain and Gibraltar. Very few people think a war is going to break mm -hmm. out there under these circumstances, but it's not quite as smooth or, or tense less mm. as the border between the U.S. and Canada or the current borders between France and Germany, France and Italy, uh, France and the U.K. So there is something different going on. As you mentioned, America, Britain, obviously, we've had a couple of wars, so we one, one, one each, I think. Yep. Uh, uh, but you argue that it's, uh, we all think the Great Reform Act is a wonderful thing in itself here, but you actually suggest the Great Reform Act marked Britain becoming a liberal democracy, and that was a point where hmm. war was no longer as possible between yeah. the U.S. and the U.K.? Yes, I'm sure if there are English constitutional <laughs> historians listening here, there'll be a phonian period where they'll take issue with this bright line that I've drawn in British history. 
and, and, and much more sensibly, of course, we know this was an evolution. Uh, if you look at British constitutionalism, you've got to go back to, uh, you know, uh, William III and uh, the, the transformation, the, move, the enhancement of Parliament then. And with another century or so, we see the, the gradual strengthening the development of Parliament. I draw the line at 1832 because it was a, a striking period where uh, a representation became more closely formally tied to the, to the citizens. Mm. Uh, you know, previously the idea of owning a, a, a borough was not un, unreasonable. Indeed, it was fully legal and legitimate in, in that context. But after 1832, the, the formal link to representation became stronger. So in a real world, we have a continuum. You should see things getting a little bit better during all the time. But for the sake of analysis, I drew a line at 1832. You could look to 1867, the expansion of the franchise. 1880s, the expansion again. Very sensible people will say, until women have the vote, how can you even talk about a democracy? <laughs> and there we're, of course, talking about the 19-teens in, in both of our countries. So... Um, uh, you know, times but have to change. It's a line that certainly works. Uh, uh, now, you also argue that uh, at times of economic change, when one world power is giving way to another, that's a time of crisis and people tend to go to war with each other. But the very fact mm. that economic change uh, as regards the US and the UK, when we fell away from being a world power in the US, mm -hmm. uh, became sort of the, the, the dominant power, we didn't go to war then. Mm. That, uh, that validates that line. But we nearly did, didn't mm -hmm. we, over the Suez crisis. It's now been revealed on recent times that the U.S. military were very keen to go in and, as I put it, kick butt in, in Suez and kick the British out if needed to. Mm -hmm. So we did nearly come to yes. war. There have been a couple of close circumstances. You know, the insight about hegemonic change and how it's so war-prone is the founding insight of the discipline of international relations. It's in Thucydides' great history of the Peloponnesian War. It was the fear that Sparta, the traditional hegemon, had that it was being overwhelmed and surpassed by Athens, the rising hegemon, that produced the Spartan decision to go to war. So, And that's an insight that deeply embedded in our thinking in international relations. So it's quite striking to see when one does have a, tr a, a transition in maritime hegemony from the UK to the US, accomplished roughly between the 1890s and the middle 1920s and 30s. Though at that period, the US is reluctant to play any role whatsoever. The real transfer doesn't take place mm. until, you know, Lend-Lease, you know, when the US comes to the assistance of the UK. And at that point, we see a transfer of maritime leadership in that fashion. And it was done without a major war. But as you say, not without crises. There was one over Venezuela in 1895 that produced very heated diplomatic notes going back and mm. forth. I don't frankly have at my fingertips the full secret history of Suez, but I do know that uh, the U.S. Uh, government put a great deal of very unwelcome pressure on the British government, mostly financial, uh, threatening to uh, not support the pound or indeed encourage a run on it. Uh, restricting oil supplies because after the canal was temporarily closed, uh, some of the, the, the natural flow of British oil from Iran and the Gulf was temporarily cut off, so much more dependent upon uh, Texas and the Americans, Americas, most of which was controlled by American firms. A great deal of pressure was put on. 
So these kind of relationships don't preclude that. Um, the, the lucky or structurally in incentivized outcome is that cooler heads usually prevail mm. in these crises. Um, you know, the, the more the deeper dependence that each had upon the other, especially during the height of the Cold War, may have played a factor here. Um, but uh, your theory still holds at the end of the day, we didn't go to war. We, we didn't go to war, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it is yeah. all, all, the point I want to come back to that you raised at the beginning is that we should be concerned mm. about the crises, not just the lack of war. Because yeah. crises can become, um, can, can run amok. And uh, even the good intentions won't stop them. So we don't want to push ourselves up to the level of mm. almost going to war mm. and then always succeed in pulling back. A better, better statesmanship will keep us away from that and maintain uh, the kind of relations that we've come to rely upon. And you mentioned lend-lease, which mm. needs, needs to take me to the last question on the British section, which is, and Britain is very much grateful that the US turned up for World War One or World War Two, mm -hmm. you know, and joined in that effort. And ever since then, uh, the UK has turned up for every US war bar one. Um, mm -hmm. But that, doesn't that run? Uh, that's it, the one thing which I felt it runs against what you what you write in your book about these things, where you talk about liberal states not entering into unconditional alliances. Mm -hmm. Does the UK? perspective of the of the special alliance mm -hmm. or special relationship one which is almost unconditional in a way almost the, the particular meaning i had in mind there and uh, it's been raised a couple times by close readers of my work uh, is that i didn't fully achieve the intent of what i was trying to do <laughs> and what i phrased that by unconditional i meant no permanent alliance between countries because these alliances I see as conditioned upon their domestic regime. The fact that uh, Britain is a liberal democracy and the U.S. is a liberal democracy. If someday one of the two of us, you know, heaven forfend, uh, becomes a, a dictatorship of one sort or another, there's no reason in my view that the alliance would continue. Mm. So it's as long as both are liberal democracies, I do expect... Uh, a better prospect of alliance conditioned by the fact that they c operate with the view that they won't go to war with each other, that there are certain forms of uh, uh, respect and, and solidarity that exist, making it easier to have alliance. They won't always have a NATO kind of alliance, but it'll make it easier to do so. And I think that'll hold as long as both are liberal democracies. They'll have that mutual respect, a degree of mutual understanding, common interest, on which it's, you can build an alliance that's more successful. Alliances between liberal states and non-liberal states can be formed. Think of World War II. Uh, the United Nations then included the alliance with the Soviet Union, uh, included uh, at, the, at the end a number of other states uh, that were not uh, themselves uh, democratic. I could run down the names. But notice how weak that alliance was and how quickly it collapsed. The alliance with the UK after World War II did not collapse or, or with the newly restored France once it, once it restored itself. So uh, that, that was my meaning, meaning of that right. phrase. It's, it's unconditional. Um, with, let's put it that way. That's a too strong statement. It's very likely to be solidaristic mm. as long as both of them are liberal democracies and they both have an interest in being allied mm. with each other. Mm. So, but not forever that way. So don't worry, we're down to the last three questions, only two of which are about Doyle's novels. <laughs> uh, so 
I'm going to take you into the uh, into the past and into the future, and also into the past. Mm -hmm. You say that you're not the first person to put this theory. That you you say the work relates back to as far back as 1795 in Immanuel Kant, mm -hmm. where he wrote uh, about a perpetual peace and about an ever increasing collection of uh, liberal states forming a Pacific Union. Uh, and how did he do that when there would have only been one liberal state in 1795, by my counting? Yeah. <laughs> Even that state is problematic. Uh, you know, the, the state that he had in mind, he did not have the United States in mm. mind, needless to say, because of slavery. Mm. Uh, it made it totally un unacceptable uh, to even think of it in those terms. But what he had in mind, believe it or not, was revolutionary France. And what he had in mind was the 1791 Constitution. Okay, this is the transitional Constitution. And it is a beautiful document. Mm. Every liberal would loves it because it, it is so progressive for its time. It removes all sorts of religious restrictions. It is a, it's as progressive as you could possibly be. And he is a philosopher up there in Königsberg, you know, hears about the events in France from 1789 on, the movement towards a representative government. He sees the 1791 constitution and he's utterly enthralled. He says, Europe has a new future. And so he assumes that with the, uh, the benefits of this great virtuous republic, um, uh, all the other states will be incentivized to form republics and join with this in a European Union. That's his vision then. Now, as, as you move from 1791 to 2 to 3, things are looking pretty <laughs> problematic. Yeah. You have, you know, the terror domestically, which is, doesn't ring well with liberal values. And then partly defensively, but partly also offensively, France goes on the march, bringing what they see as the benefits of radical democracy to its neighbors by force. And uh, this doesn't hold up as well. So it's only that brief vision of a potentially uh, liberal, democratic, peace-oriented uh, France that, uh, that uh, Kant appreciates. But it's enough for him as a philosopher to realize, ah, he thinks this way, that one can have peace with France. His, all of his friends who are liberals are thinking that way. Uh, and this might be translatable to a broader scheme. And he builds up his model in perpetual peace on this. He is in a dialogue with Rousseau, the great skeptic. Rousseau, in the end, thought peace was next to impossible unless you isolated your country like a Corsica and had no relations yeah. with outsiders. Um, uh, and he, even that, he thought, is not sustainable. Rousseau thought is not sustainable. Kant says, I can figure this out. And then the inspiration of France uh, comes into play, and he puts forth perpetual peace as a vision of what might happen mm. if things operated the way he wanted them to. Mm. Now, taking it into the far future, mm. the... Um, uh, you have some fun, uh, you don't put this as a, forward as a theory as yourself, but you have some fun with those who do look at your version of that uh, uh, Pacific uh, Union, the ever-increasing number of liberal states, and you postulate uh, or look at the calculations of what point it would, you would reach complete coverage of a planet in liberal states, so right. peace reigns, and I don't know, do we have Fukuyama's end of history? And you said others have suggested it could be somewhere between 2101 and 2113, uh, mm -hmm. are we on course? <laughs> the first lesson 
about making predictions as a, as a social science is make sure that the, the due date is long after one's own time. <laughs> My grandchildren may be embarrassed by these kind of predictions, but I certainly will not be. It was partly tongue-in-cheek, as mm. you correctly in, interpret it. Um, but I wanted to use that to illustrate two points. Uh, uh, Kant thought that uh, the logic of peace was produced both by war and by trade. War forced states to be more efficient and defend themselves, and in defending themselves, they would have to call upon their own citizens to sacrifice, and if you ask them to sacrifice, they'll demand more accountability, more of a say. So, ironically, war was a way in which Republican democratic governments would spread. The other much better way was through trade and exchange and education. All of these things would spread. So what I simply did was looked at the pattern of past warlike decades and the, and the growth of trade and just projected up into the future and saw when that crossed with the likely 200 or so states that existed in the world and might well exist. Now, there's no reason to expect the past to continue Things could change, trade could change, wars could change, the number of states could change. We've been inventing a lot of little states since I wrote in the 1980s. All over the Balkans, many new states, you know, all over the former Soviet Union, many new states. We see them popping up even in our own day, needless to say, South Sudan and uh, East Timor, happily so. Uh, less happily so, you know, Ossetia, uh, Abkhazia, uh, Kosovo is struggling for recognition. No one recognizes the nice, very well-run little state of Somaliland. So we may have a lot more states out there, too. But it was simply projecting those trends with the roughly estimated 200 states. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the academic purpose of it was simply to illustrate these two forces that he saw at work. He never thought that they were predictable, nor should one. And also to basically tweak and, you know, just play a little game. Nothing mm. more than that. So I'm not one that believes that history comes to an end when you have a democracy. Indeed, that's when, when history really gets a bit more interesting. Uh, when you're not shooting at people, you have a better chance of listening to them. Uh, you know, the victories of women's suffrage, for example, the victories of the American civil rights movement, um, those were done predominantly through public demonstrations. To the extent that there was violence against the American civil rights movement, it was inflicted by the opponents of, of liberation. And so history really gets interesting, in my view, when you can play it out under circumstances that take the exercise of force off the table. It brings out all sorts of new actors with new demands and allows for changes that are impossible during the emergency periods of war. So history, in my view, gets really excited when we get peace. So even if someday we were to have a global peace, that's when it would start to be really fun, in my view. And the last question you'd be relieved to, to hear is you're graduating alongside a lot of Warwick students, mm -hmm. um, who many of whom will live to see that period you're talking about. Yes. Uh, have you any thoughts for them as they go out into the world or your fellow graduates? Yes, I think, you know, you know the, the most important thought is that, um, you know, great achievements have been made in the past. You know, my father's, I guess your father's generation, 
protected the world from a deeply serious me menace of, of uh, Nazi aggression. Uh, our generation, you know, I'm not sure we've done so well. You know, we, we helped invent the internet and a lot of hot technology, and we had very good music in the 1960s, I must say. Hard to match it since. But we've left a major set of challenges to the next generation. Uh, the great achievements of the past 50 years were, of course, defending democracy globally, and then, you know, inventing, designing, managing the welfare state so that we opened up the benefits of the efficiencies that the market economy can, can achieve to those who might otherwise be pushed aside by it. And they've been given opportunities, healthcare and education, to be full participants. So the welfare state is one of the great accomplishments. It tamed the market. Uh, and the welfare state is predominantly an accomplishment of the post-war period in our countries. Um, the challenge that we've left to the next generation is that we've created a global economy, a global market, where capital and goods and technology move with lightning speed sometimes. But we haven't created any governance market for it. That is, to help those that suffer temporarily to provide opportunities for those who need those in order to step forward and gain all the benefits that a global market can achieve. There's a bit of this in Europe. There's been some progress there. But outside the European context, you know, markets rule. Mm -hmm. And markets can do a great number of things, including a great deal of efficiency and dynamism. But what they're not good at is long-term thinking for the future, investing in those who are vulnerable, investing to make for a decent and just society. That's not what markets do. And there's no global governance mechanism that at the global scale can begin to do those kinds of civilizing adjustments that every market needs in order to be de decent. And I think that's one of the big challenges that the, that the young men and women who graduated today will and need to face in their hopefully early careers. Thank you once again for, for taking the time and having the patience to deal with uh, questions about those objects getting bored to tears with. So thank you once again for having the patience to do that. And congratulations once more on receiving your honorary of Doctor of Laws from the University of Warwick. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been a pleasure and I'm deeply honored by the degree.